I was thinking um, in the lead up to this week that we are a pretty funny bunch when it comes to popularising Bible verses. Of course, I think the book of Micah is mostly famous within at least the wider church in general because of Micah 6 and 8, isn't it? I think I've got it on the, on the screen there. He has told you, O oh man, what is good? And we, we, if you type in Micah 6 and 8 into Google and put images, there are thousands of beautifully designed graphical things. This is just one of the ones that I saw just plucked it out randomly. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And lots of, lots of people know that verse. It's been popularised by T-shirts and mugs. I mean, if you get into Kurong, there's a whole aisle for Micah 6.8. There's another verse in Micah. In fact, it's in the passage that we're going to look at today. Um, I'm almost positive that you will not find it on a plaque in Kurong. So I have taken the liberty of doing up my own graphic for it. All right. Micah 3, 1 to 3. I think this one's going to really catch on. <laughs> Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meats in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. It's catchy, isn't it? <laughs> I think there's a whole, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a punt. I'm going to send this through to them. And there's going to be a whole range of mugs, pencil cases, plaques, cookware. <laughs> it's an unfair, that's an unfair, I shouldn't have singled out. Kurong. It should just be any, any Christian book sale, retailers, whatever it might be. We are a funny bunch when it comes to picking out verses that inspire us, all right? Um, we're going to get to those particular verses in a moment. And, and while we can just have a bit of a laugh, the reality is they're horrific, right? Horrific verses. They, they are meant, by the way, um, to be confronting. You should get that type of visceral reaction to that sort of thing. That's what God wants you to feel when you read verses like that. That says that that's horrific. What a tragic and terrible thing to read in the Bible. And we'll get to why that is soon enough. But before, before we get to that, let me just lighten it up a little bit. I'm, I want to bring two memories that I have of my childhood that for some bizarre reason, just because of the way that my strange mind work, works, as I was preparing for this week, these two specific memories came to mind. So the first one is a mission trip. We've been talking about mission trips. The first one is a mission trip that I went on when I was 13 years old. All right? Um, pick which one is me. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm the guy in the middle with the 
um, Aboriginal art print, if you, if you couldn't see it there. Um, that's taken uh, in the highlands of the Solomon Islands in 19, I think January of 1990. Um, I was 13 years old and I went on this mission trip. It was very remote. Um, there was no electricity running water where, where we were. And we were tasked with helping this local um, group of Christians in this very remote area in the highlands of the Solomon Islands in building an um, underground water reservoir so that they could have this sort of holiday um, Bible school that they were running. But it was often through the, not the rainy season. And so they were wanting to capture rainwater in the rainy season and hold it in reservoirs. And so that's what we were doing. And um, there's, there's me building a wall. Now, because we were going to be in really remote areas, um, we didn't have a lot of sort of the tools that you would necessarily go to use. And so one of our um, older guys on the team, uh, I think that's him in the picture there, uh, his name was, uh, is, he's still alive by the way, um, Des, um, and I said to him, how are we going to level this wall up if we don't have all the tools required? And he said, oh, he said, he's an old Queensland farmer. And he said, that's easy, Chris. And he grabbed a garden hose and he filled it up with water. And he said, you just put the water level at this end at the height you want it to be, drag the garden hose all the way up to the other end, and wherever the water is at that end, that's level. Because water always finds its own level. It evens itself out. I'll make the connection soon enough. That's my first memory. Here's my second memory, and it's of one of my favourite comic books that I love to read. Forget your Marvel, all right? Forget DC comic books. The comic book that I love to read was Gary Larson's The Far Side. Yeah. All right? Absolute gold. This is one of my favourites. Can you, can you read that on the screen? You can read that? This was one of my favourite, favourite Far Side comic strips <laughs> waiting for the penny to drop that's alright if you don't get his humour that's probably why you don't get mine alright nature abhors a vacuum my wife will probably tell you that I do as well um, here's why those two memories relate you can jump off that one people will still be sitting there going I don't get it um, humanity, all of us included, humanity has an overwhelming drive to make things even. Just like water finds its own level, and it's true that nature abhors a vacuum, it will always fill it. We have this overwhelming drive to make things even to balance out the scales. You don't have to teach you, anyone to do this. Go to a, a, a kid's playground in a school and get them to pick teams. And you will hear, it's not even. They've, they've made a judgment somehow that there's some bigger kids or stronger kids or faster kids on that side. There's, there's more. Come to Dynamite or Ignite and you'll hear it. 
It's not even. That wasn't fair, right? And I think this foundational desire, whether it's in childhood or certainly in adult life, we find our own ways of thinking something's not fair, something's not even. There's not an even playing field here. This foundational desire leaves us wondering whether God is driven by the same sort of base desires that we are as well. And the question that we have before us today is, does God get even? Does God get even? All right. To a large degree, I'm, I'm thinking about this particular question in the way that many people do, whether you identify as a Christian or not. And, and that's often phrased by, how will God view my life at the end of my days? Will God's great scales balance in my favour? And if they don't, what will happen? How will God respond? So let's sort of do a bit of an overview of the passages that we have in front of us today. So we'll look at verses uh, chapter 3 all the way through to chapter 5. I'm not going to read it all now. And, and we don't have time to even really go through every single thing in those um, chapters. And because Matt did such a superb job at giving us an overview last week of chapters 1 and chapter 2, I thought I would just sort of try and keep pace with you, mate. And I'm going to try and do the same today. So to understand this passage, chapter 3 to chapter 5, we really have to just zoom out a little bit and just remember the way that Micah delivers this entire prophetic message, the entire book. And it really comes as a series of sort of pendulum-like perspectives where the whole book swings between judgment and salvation. Judgment Salvation. Judgment. Salvation. There are three movements, three swings of the pendulum between judgment and salvation right throughout this entire book. Yet Micah's collection, because this, um, this book was written over a period of time, these oracles, these prophetic oracles came over a, a period of time and they've been collected together. They're not simply some random collection of insights that Micah had, but they're actually a, a highly organised triad, a, a group of three oracles which are given that stress first judgment and then salvation. In many ways, um, this trilogy might be likened to a symphony. I've had a bit of a late-life discovery that I actually really love classical music. I know. Bizarre. I, I think I liked it a little bit when I was younger, and then I just sort of thought, classical music is not cool. I don't know why I thought that. Um, and recently, I've started discovering it again and really enjoying it. I was listening to a podcast on classical music. I know. I told Tim, and he just went, you surprise me all the time. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, in many ways, this trilogy might be likened to a symphony in which 
smaller themes are repeated and intensified until they eventually reach a crescendo. That's what the book of Micah is like. Themes of judgment and salvation, which are picked up in what Matt covered last week in chapters 1 and 2, are now sort of repeated but intensified in this next section of judgment and salvation. And then next week, they come to a crescendo of judgment and salvation again. The first unit of the book, chapters 1 and chapter 2, contained mostly judgment. Sorry about that, Matt. Matt last week got lumped with just the pretty much all judgment. And then just at the very end, there's two verses. And Matt's like, I would have liked to have focused on those two verses, right? But he stayed true to what the passage was about, which was judgment. But there was just a glimpse of salvation at the end, wasn't there? That was the first pendulum swing. The second unit that we're going to look at today continues that judgment pretty much all the way through chapter 3. But then it starts to look ahead at a future salvation that will be possible only by means of suffering. And we're going to get that through chapter 4 and chapter 5. And then next week, the final unit continues the judgment again in chapter 6 and a little bit into chapter 7. But then it looks beyond the darkness to the final salvation, this crescendo, which is effectively captured in a final vision of this sort of transcendent God who rises above everything and fulfills his covenant and rescues his people. That's the way this whole book works. So let's just zoom in for a moment on chapter 2. We're still going to sort of do this overview. And um, let's see if we can get a bit of a handle on what we're going to look at specifically today. All right, so this second movement, chapters 3, 4, and 5. All right, this is the, the second movement of the pendulum between judgment and salvation. And it develops themes from the first movement. It intensifies them. It expands them. It develops them. Um, this section begins on a note that contrasts Radically with the last oracle. In that little two-verse salvation oracle that we got at the end of uh, chapter 2 last week, Yahweh, the God of the nation of Israel, the God of all things, Yahweh, it says, was at the head of his people. And he was liberating them from the prison house of their future exile. Have a look at it. Chapter 2, verse 13. I'm going to read from the English Standard Bible today. Micah chapter 2. Have a look in your Bibles at verse 13. It says, He who opens the breach goes up before them. It's talking about Yahweh, their God. They break through and pass the gate going out of it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. Right? A moment of liberation, a moment of triumph or salvation. There's the pendulum swinging hard back to salvation again. But Micah chapter 3, all of a sudden the pendulum starts to swing back hard the other way towards judgment. Remember? Yahweh was at the head of the people, liberating them from the prison house of their future exile. But now Micah returns to the present. 
to corrupt judicial and political leaders. And they too are at the head of the people. Have a look in chapter 3, verse 1. And here he says, I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. In chapter 2, God was at the head in their future salvation. But in the present, Micah says, now I want to talk to those who are actually right now at the head of my people. The current leaders spread the flesh of their victims in a pot and break their bones. Remember our verse that we said we will not probably find on a plaque? Yahweh, God, the Lord, is he who leads his people through the gate of exile and breaches the prison walls. But here we find leaders who are cannibalizing their people. But the Lord takes notice. Two more judgment oracles follow this one. One directed at false prophets in chapters 3 verses 5 to 8. And then another directed at the entire political and religious establishment of Israel, including the most sacred symbol of God's presence with them, the temple. You'll find that in chapter 3 verses 9 down to verse 12. And by the time we reach the conclusion of chapter 3, it seems like Judah is completely lost. It is at an end. It is devastating to read chapter 3. But in reality, these severe judgments that God is pouring out are really just a precursor to what he will do, a new beginning for his people. And then a salvation oracle is placed immediately after this judgment oracle. The pendulum starts to swing back towards salvation again. And it will show that in the last days, at the end of history, that the broken down temple will be raised again to the highest elevation in the entire world to become a beacon of hope and a beacon of peace for all people everywhere. You'll find that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And then a, a whole new section of oracles show how this goal will be achieved. How will it be that God will raise this temple again for the entire world to see peace and life? And in chapter 4, we introduce to the Lord as a shepherd king. We see insights into how God will be like a shepherd and gather his people. And he, he gives Jerusalem as being a center point for that. And in particular, he names Bethlehem as being instrumental in that. And then finally, we introduce to God not as a shepherd king, but in chapter 5, verses 2 to 9, and then verses 10 and onwards, we get God not as a shepherd king, but now God as a warrior king. Not the God who gathers his people, but the God who destroys his enemies. All right, let's dig deeper into this passage. That's a bit of an overview. And I've got three questions to sort of try and drive our thinking down into this passage a little bit. Remember, the big question is, does God get even? 
That's the big question that we're hoping to try and answer. But there are three other questions that I think might help us track along that path. Firstly is, to what does God get even? Right? If God does get even, what are the sorts of things that God gets even to? Now, I'm going to give you my answer to that, and then I'm going to show you from the Scriptures how I arrived there. Um, this is what I think God gets even to, according to Micah. God gets even to an abuse of authority, especially trusted authority who are meant to champion justice. All right? So there are these leaders that are in Israel. They are meant to champion justice for his people. And instead, they abuse their position of authority. They abuse their power and they oppress the very people that they are meant to champion for. And as Micah's oracle of judgment unfolds, as the pendulum swings towards judgment, we can see the way that God will respond to those sorts of leaders. And I'll outline it for you. The first group of leaders that you're going to find are in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And I've just called them the, the judicial leaders, those who are in positions of justice. They might have been uh, judges of the people. People who are meant to sort of settle um, problems or occasions or arbitrate over some sort of social dilemma that was happening within the nation. These were the judges of the people. Uh, here's what Micah, here's what God says through Micah to these people. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Right? These were the ones who were meant to judge matters and bring justice. Instead, when the needy seek justice, they receive injustice instead. Right? They were the people who were meant to love good and hate evil, but instead they hate the good and love the evil. Right? They're horrifying images of cannibalism in chapter 3. And they're meant to shock us. They're meant to horrify us. Because God is setting up these actions as a way to make us feel horrified by the actions of these leaders. That they would pervert justice. To them, people had become commodities. Something they could use and trade. Or in Micah's language, devour and digest. Thinking that they could get help from the courts because of the injustice in society, the people do not merely get ripped off. The people get ripped apart. I think this is a good reminder for us today, those of us who aren't living in Micah's time, but in our time. Especially for us as people of faith, followers of the Lord Most High. We need to be reminded that human beings are not objects. 
They are subjects made in the image of their God. They are children stamped with their Creator's affection and love. People are never resources to be used, but they are people, they are beings to love. Instead of using people and loving things, the church must love people and use things. People in positions of power must never use their power to hurt or destroy, but instead to serve and to empower. And so God will get even with judges, those in authority and power, who devour people like commodities to be used. Like things along the way to get their own objections, their their own objectives completed. And so the people become the fuel of the fire to achieve what they want. Maybe we need to hear this judgment. There's a second group of people that God levels a finger of accusation against and says, I will get even with you. And these are the false prophets. Have a look at verse 5 of chapter 3. False prophets. By the way, false prophets never walk around introducing themselves as false prophets. They just call themselves prophets. It's up to us to decide whether they're false or not. These ones are false. Verse 5, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Micah announces that the prophets lead the people astray. This is the exact opposite of a prophet's reason for being. A prophet was meant to lead people to their God. Instead, these prophets lead people astray. They were called originally to give guidance of the most reliable kind, revealing God's will to God's people. But Micah says that they have betrayed their calling, purposefully misguiding people. A bit like it would be if you went to see a doctor who was charged with healing, instead uses his talents to kill you. The revelation continues to explain why the prophets are doing this. Why are they doing this? Right? Because they're mercenaries. They offer their talents to the highest bidder. And they tailor their talents depending on your payment. Did you see that? They declare peace to those who will put food in their belly. And they declare war on those who won't feed them. These false prophets had an appetite for something. Food is what's symbolized here. Maybe it was power, 
Maybe it was fame. I don't know what it was, but they had an appetite for something. And when someone offered what they wanted as payment, they said, let me tailor God's message just for you. It'll be exactly what you want to hear. New Testament warns us that there's a coming day when congregations of churches will gather around people who will tickle their ears, say the very things that they want to hear, and they'll elevate those types of teachers, and those types of teachers will fill their belly on their praise. This is what's happening here. Of course, they not only declare peace to those who will feed their belly, but it says that they declare war on those who won't. There'll be some people in Israel at the time and they said, we are not giving you what you want. And so they tailored their prophetic messages to declare war on those people. <laughs> They're mercenaries proclaiming peace to those who pay while declaring war against those who do not. Their greed is emphasized by the payment they are looking for. Right? They want food for their ferocious appetites. And the end result is that these prophets are no longer speaking oracles from God. Rather, it is the audience that determines what the prophetic oracles are. They tailored their message for their audience. What comes out of the mouth of these prophets depends on what has been put into it. They became like a spiritual pokey. Feed the right coins in, push the right buttons, and you'll get what you think you deserve. And there's an age-old temptation, especially for those of us who are leading in churches, to tone down the message, to make it more palatable for the hearer. And when leaders and preachers surrender to that temptation, they begin down a very slippery slope of pleasing people rather than God. Where they seek fame and where they seek fortune with a message that will be popular rather than true. And then, can they be called prophets of God? Or prophets of their own belly. They serve a master and it isn't God. And what once began as a sincere desire to share the truth of God's word in order to help people can become warped over time to an interest only in money or fame or any other number of appetites that we can develop. It is God's word that must be primary. And those speaking for him require a constant dependence on his spirit in order to tell people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Micah's message of judgment is hard to hear. And it may very well be this morning that we need to hear the judgment of Micah before we can hear the salvation. There's another group of leaders here that I want to touch on before we move on. We'll find them in verses 9 down to verse 11. They're the community leaders. And here, Micah captures all of these different types of leaders and he gathers them all together 
He says in verse 9, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgments for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come on us. So now God sweeps all these leaders together for one final indictment. Judges, prophets, priests, he puts them all together. And see here it says that the the word detest, they detest. There's lots of things in the Bible that God detests. Seven things I hate. Seven things I detest, the God, God says in the book of Proverbs. Look at what these people detest. God loves justice. The very thing that God loves, they detest. They hate it. They're so evil that they find justice repulsive. Similarly, they take what is straight and upright and they twist it into something crooked. Their character is in every way opposite to the Lord's. And he, he blasts them. He condemns the leaders for the breadth and the depth of their, their wicked deception of the people. It's interesting if you go back to the Hebrew in this. I'm not a Hebrew expert, but it was great reading some stuff about this. The way that the, the Hebrew sentencing is um, structured there, it says, its heads for a bribe give judgment. It places, it places the, the, the crooked twist in front of their action. Just to make the point, its heads for a bribe give judgment. Its priests for a price teach. It's prophets for money practice divination. You can see where their goal is. So the heads of the people, the judicial officials, are bought with bribes. And so their verdicts are unjust. The priests likewise have sold out to money, tailoring their teaching to the monetary payment that they desire. And the the prophet's activity has become so bankrupt that it's compared to pagan divination. They've led the people astray with their guidance so much that they are totally oblivious to their imminent disaster. These people are standing in the middle of all of their wrongdoing and they're actually calling on the Lord. They're saying, hey, listen, God's in our midst. Nothing bad can happen to us. We belong to the Lord. There are people who desire God to be their saviour. It happened in Micah's time, it can happen in ours. There are people who who desire God to be their saviour, but they are unwilling for him to be their Lord. And that's what's happening here. They were calling out, oh, God is in our midst. He'll save us. 
And yet their life, their actions, their direction was so opposite to what they claimed. These are people who trust more in the symbols of their faith rather than the object of true faith. Or to place this warning into modern day Christianity, there are people who want the benefits of a relationship with God but leave God himself on the shelf. They want the crown, but they don't want the cross. So do we need to hear Micah's warning? I do. This oracle concerning the destruction of the most sacred institution in Judah, which is the temple. This is the oracle that that forecasts the temple being absolutely destroyed. This was the the pinnacle, the symbol of everything that an Israelite would have seen, that they are blessed, that God was in their midst, and God said to them, that symbol will be wiped away. I think it points to the futility of relying on structures and institutions and buildings in the absence of true worship. How how dare we, Micah says, turn up to church on a Sunday morning to say, let's worship because it's a church building, because we've got a band playing and comfortable seats to sit on. When there is nothing about the rest of our life that even looks like worship at all. When I will bow down and worship every other false god on Monday through Saturday and then turn up on Sunday and say, let's sing a worship song. Micah says, God will get even with that. We need to hear that judgment. We need to hear that warning. The second question that we need to have a look at, how does God get even? If there's the sorts of things that God gets even against, then how will he get even? Well, he will get even with devastating destruction of the very thing that each group relies on. Really, really quickly. Those first people that we looked at from chapter 3, the judicial judges, have a look at verse 4. Just a single verse there for a moment. God says to them, they'll cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. This is how God gets even with these judicial leaders. The very thing that leaders did to the people, God will do to them. It reminds me of one of the most terrifying passages in the entire scripture. This is the one passage of scripture that terrifies me the most. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And did many, many mighty works in your name? Verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? We prophesied. We cast out demons. We did mighty works and it was all in your name. Depart from me. Why? I never knew you. I never knew you. That should terrify us. That's a terrifying verse in the Bible. And it reminds me of these leaders who were meant to be doing God's justice. And when the time came for them to call out, Oh God, listen to me. It says God turned his back and remained silent. The very thing that they wanted, God's direction in their life, God would not give it to them. What about the false prophets? How does he get even with them? Verse 6 of chapter 3. Therefore, it will be night for you without visions. It will grow dark for you without divination. The sun will set on these prophets. The daylight will turn black over them. A prophet wants light. They want to see insight. They want to know what God is going to do. And God says, the day will come. This is how I will get even with you. You will call out for light or you'll get his darkness. You will want visions, but you'll be blind. Then the seers, verse 7 says, will be ashamed and their diviners disappointed. They will cover their mouths because there will be no answer from God. Instead of divine sight, these prophets will receive divine darkness. They'll call out to God for direction and all they will receive is silence. What about the community leaders? What do they get? Verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be ploughed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height, a, a paddock full of trees. The, the very symbol of God's presence, the temple, will be wiped clean. There'll just be bushes there and nothing else. The very object of these leaders' confidence was in the temple and not God. They were putting their confidence in the symbols of their religion and not the person of who their God was. And so God would completely and utterly demolish everything that they put their trust in. Zion, ploughed as a field. Jerusalem, a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house of the Lord. Bushland. There was going to be absolute devastation. So here's the last question though before we finish. Does God always get even? We've seen to what does God get even? How does God get even? Now this one. Does God always get even? And so... Do you remember our big question? Does God get even? To which I think we can confidently say, absolutely he does. Yes, God gets even. But this is where the passage surprises us. Remember that I said that Micah is best understood when you follow that pendulum, right? Judgment, salvation. So while in chapter 3, the pendulum has swung pretty hard into the direction of judgment. Now, chapters 4 and chapter 5, and we're not going to cover them at the same depth as we've just been doing chapter 3, it swings back to a message of hope 
in a coming salvation. I just do want to read to you seven verses from chapter 4, though. So right on the tail end of all this devastation, all this judgment, all this, the way that God will get even, we get this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. He's just been saying how much it would be brought low. But now he says it will be in the latter days, the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we might walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many nations and many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame, I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. All right. This new salvation oracle comes immediately after that sort of uh, destruction that we saw. It climaxes with the fact that this once broken down temple will be raised again. There's a dramatic contrast, isn't there, between the broken down temple, a temple that has been destroyed and a temple that has been built again. Become a magnet. It's a magnet for the nations. Yahweh rules. The Lord rules from it. And it stands as a beautiful transition into these two chapters of salvation. A picture of the future glory of Zion. A place of peace and not bloodshed. A place of truth and, and not corruption. A place of blessing, not a curse. And it stands as the future goal from which the present Zion, the present Jerusalem that Micah spoke to had become completely hijacked to. In chapter 5, it continues on. We won't read it all this because of time. But in chapter 5, we see God not only gathering, but in chapter 5, we see God marching out as a warrior king to defend his people. This is the, the future that we have. Micah lifts his eyes up and he lifts up the eyes of all those that are, are in Israel that day. A day when the temple will be restored. When God's city would once again be a beacon of light on a high hill. And maybe, maybe you're thinking of the time when Jesus uses the same imagery as Micah. Can you think of it? John chapter 2, verse 13. The pastor of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers were sitting there and he made a whip of cords. 
He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is what Mike has been talking about. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered what it was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What, basically, what right do you have to come in and do this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll rise it up again. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised up from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Remember also in Matthew chapter 5 verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill and it cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. This is the, the imagery of Micah. That the temple destroyed but rebuilt, but rebuilt in a, in a way that no one expected. And as, as a light that would be sit on a high mountain but in a way that we would never have expected. God is absolutely a God who gets even. And that should terrify us. Because we're all good at pointing out all the other people that God should get even with. But we are each, all of us here, standing on the scales of God's righteous judgment. And every single one of us are found deficient. Every single one of us. Without intervention, we should have no other expectation of God apart from his wrath and his judgment against us. But, but God, who is rich in mercy, but Jesus, but the gospel of grace, Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath. Just like the rest of mankind, just like Micah's people. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. So not one of us can boast. 
Or, if we were to summarize that in one verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Does God get even? Absolutely, he does. Christ died for the ungodly, though. Not for the good. Not for the morally upright. Not for the well. Do you remember what Jesus said? Those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the good news of the gospel. This is the surprising salvation of God. This is grace. God has all God will always get even with sin. Always. But so that you might live, Jesus balanced the scales on your behalf. So that you could live, so that I could live. That's what 1 John tells us in chapter 4. Is this love? Not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be a, big word, propitiation for our sins, which means an act that simultaneously appeases wrath and gains favour. Jesus does that for us. So where does this leave us? We're out of time. Where does this leave you? Maybe you find yourself at odds with God this morning where you know that your life has consisted of a series of self-centered endeavors to elevate your own plans and often at the expense of other people. Where people have become commodities to you, expendable for your pleasure or for your gain. Then you need to hear, I need to hear, the warning of Micah this morning. We need to hear the warning of God this morning. What you have so carefully built will be torn down. It will be made low. God will get even. He will not be mocked. But you also need to hear that it's not too late. You, hear, you, you need to hear not only the warning of Micah, but you need to hear the message of salvation and hope found in Micah. That Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Or Romans 5 and 1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is hope that comes in the salvation of God, and that hope is in Christ alone. Even when your destruction is near, Jesus calls to you. Find your peace in him. Find your hope in him. Or maybe this morning you wonder if those who have acted unjustly towards you will ever be called to account. Maybe you have experienced oppression or abuse. Maybe you feel as though you have been cannibalized for the sake of somebody else's gain. What about them, you wonder? Will they ever be brought to justice? Then let Micah assure you, yes, they will. They will. God will always bring justice to the oppressors of his people. Either in this life, by prosecution, 
or in the life to come by judgment or at the cross where Jesus will take even their sin and give them new life. Because Jesus has given us new insight into the judgment of God. This is how God gets even. The symbol, this is a quote by a man by the name of John Stott. I finish with it. The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. Right? The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. Yes, God gets even. He will get even to injustice. He will get even by means of absolute devastation. But does he always get even? Yes. But in ways that surprises us. In ways that invites us to come back to his salvation. In ways where Jesus takes the penalty for our sin and invites us into relationship with God again. Don't let this day pass if that's your next step. I'm going to sit here if you'd like to know more about that or someone to pray with you. I'll be down the front. Thanks, Reuben.